0: I would hazard to say that we could end up with a very stark barometer of financial success of people who can retire and people who cannot retire from our generation. And I think that it will be a very clear correlation that the group that can retire is the group that got some Bitcoin before the rest of the world caught on. And the group that can't retire is the group that dismisses Bitcoin until half the world has already adopted it.
1: This is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin,
2: we talk finance, and we talk shit. Thank you. Thank you very much for joining us once again. We're glad that you want to listen to two degenerate firemen talk about Bitcoin. Today, we have one of our all-time favorite guests back on the show. Croesus, also known as Jesse Myers, is back, and he absolutely slays it in this one. If you aren't aware, Jesse has a phenomenal newsletter called Once in a Species. If you want some of the easiest to read macroeconomic content, please check it out. With Jesse, we cover the gamut. We talk about nation-state default and the various ways it happens. We talk about the Bitcoin halving and how the intersection of that happening in approximately 12 months could potentially coincide with a fired up money printer and how that could coalesce into some serious fireworks for the price of Bitcoin. We get pretty bullish in this one, just the remedy for the drudgery of a bear market. Hold on to that Bitcoin and remember, number go up. If you plan to hold that Bitcoin for the long term, and you should if you are listening to this. You need to get those precious sats onto a cold card Mark IV. This thing is the ultimate in cold storage. We do not mess around when it comes to storing Bitcoin. This is one of the most scarce assets in the world. Do not trust it to a signing device that also stores shit coins. You wouldn't put your Michael Jordan rookie card in a safe with bags of dog shit, would you? Of course not. Check out the link in our show notes to get discounts on the CoinKite store and use code BCB to get 5% off the cold card Mark IV. The Bitcoin Conference will be held in Nashville next year. You can get 10% off your early bird tickets with coupon code BCB24. That's coupon code BCB24.
1: Wait, before we get too deep, guys, I, I do have a warning here off the top, and that's that I just finished eating seven. Yeah, you heard me correct. Seven chorizo and steak tacos. So if I disappear... During this chat, you two will know
2: exactly Dude, where I am. They were
1: delicious, but true. they have explosive potential out the back end.
2: They do. Dude, chorizo is a dangerous thing to play with, my friend. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Uh, Jesse, we, Dan, and I don't we don't often work together. So yesterday we were working together, and a gentleman named Phil, bless his heart, decides he's going to bring in some venison for us, and uh, which is a really cool gesture to bring in something. To cook it for guys all day, but Dan and I, I, I saw it in his eyes as well. In the morning, we were like, "What are we getting into here?" He's and Phil's a good cuts. cook, by the way. We need to. A, I need to chime in here. He said yes. he's a great cook. He's probably a top ten cook. Potential, but, yeah, yeah. But he pulls out these cuts, and they look, they look very muscular. There's no fat in these things. It, I don't even know what part of the deer this is from. It was probably the leg or something. We had a busy day. No time to let these things cook properly. One of the worst meals I've ever had at the firehouse last night. And I'm sorry to say this, Phil. It was, it was bad. And you could tell he knew it. The, my only comment to him when he asked how it is, I was like, it's different. Talk to him
1: right now. Let's it's be very honest. Different. Level with him. Yeah. Josh was like, I've never Poor had Phil. this before. I've never had anything like this before. It's different, Phil, you're Phil. a great cook. If you're listening, we love you. We appreciate we you in the kitchen, but it's just the We were not honest out. with
2: you, Phil, though. We pretended like it was okay. It wasn't. It wasn't okay. <laughs>
0: Was was this before or after uh, there was bicep measuring going on in the firehouse?
2: Oh, that was at like 830 in the morning. We had a I, I, Jim, our friend, Jim, our good friend, Jim. We noticed he was, you know, he's flexing a lot that morning. And we're like, dude, I think one of your arms is smaller than the other. So we and got a is, measuring tape out. And we verified that <laughs> one arm is one half inch less in diameter or in circumference than the other. So he's got some work to do. You know, his right hand is doing more work. Which is not unusual, but he needs to even this out. He needs symmetry if he wants to pretend that he's some kind of firehouse uh, demigod, which he thinks he is.
1: Jesse, uh, you are one of our favorite guests. We are ecstatic to have you back on Blue Collar Bitcoin. We spent some time with you in person in Miami, uh, so it hits different this time. It's good to see you. Uh, What's going on? Give Give us a window into your world here today.
0: Window into the world. First of all, great to be back. Um I, I love the uh the vibe here on Blue Collar Bitcoin. Uh, and yeah, it's fun hanging out with you guys in Miami. Um I understand uh I missed the uh the big night for for you guys, but uh one day you know, another one day. will make it. Yeah, another time. Um I'll <laughs> we'll impress you. Yeah, in terms of uh window into the day, just setting up on-ramp Bitcoin. Um and uh, and also you know, writing Once in a Species, um, which has been uh, two things that have consumed my plate entirely uh, of late. Uh, for people who, who aren't familiar, um, OnRamp Bitcoin is a new uh, Bitcoin trust, um, and we are intending to, and, and we have built a trust that um, uh, does what... GBTC uh, should have been, in our view, um, in the sense that one, there's a multi-party custody, so uh, three different institutions hold the keys to the Bitcoin vault. Mm-hmm. We are one of the three, um, and and in that sort of arrangement, there's no ability to rehypothecate Bitcoin. So you know, the the Bitcoin it sits on chain, and it and it can't move um, un- unless all parties involved, or two out of three, agree. Um, And and that's at the behest of of clients. And then the other potentially even bigger um, advantage of this trust model is that um, there's no taxable event when you decide you are ready to take on self-custody of your Bitcoin. Uh, And that's different from these other existing trust models because... They, they, most of them don't allow you to withdraw Bitcoin first of all so what you're allowed to do is withdraw your dollars uh, which means you're having you have a taxable event since you've been in Bitcoin exposure right. but you're only allowed to withdraw dollars and then you have to turn around and buy Bitcoin um, you know now that you've had that tax hit um, for from your capital gains so and, and it doesn't have to be that way it can you can have a trust model where you can take possession of your Bitcoin um, and it's not a taxable event because you have held your Bitcoin in the trust um, for all, all that time. So that's what we're building with on-ramp Bitcoin, and um, you know we think that it's a, it's a better way to get people started in Bitcoin but sets them up f- f- to take self-custody down the road um, such that people don't need to be going through these inferior um, trust arrangements um, specifically, grayscale or or some of the other ones out there. Um, going into this next cycle, hopefully, we can uh, steer people in a in a better direction. Wow. On the um, on
2: ramp idea, while we're talking about it, can you give us an idea of what your typical institutional customer looks like? Are they just are they just not comfortable managing these keys themselves, but they also do understand some of the dangers that GBTC? um inherently has after watching this thing perform over the, over the last couple of years um give us a bit of an idea of like who who are the customers on ramp is uh geared towards
0: yeah so it's it's for high net worth individuals and institutions um we are limited by it has to be accredited investors and part of that is we have a hundred thousand dollar minimum um some of the the things that you know institutions in particular care about uh is they're aware that most existing products are you're, you're trusting some single uh, po- single point of failure, a, a singu- singular counterparty, or in fact, oftentimes a chain of single counterparties. So, you know, if, if you have Coinbase custody, you're ultimately trusting Coinbase and, and you it's a black box of how they're doing their custody. Um, and you know that if the government was going to 6102, they would send a, a a message to to Coinbase first and foremost because mm-hmm. it's the biggest honeypot of Bitcoin out there. and And what are they going to do? They're going to they're going to turn over the keys. Um, so some folks are aware of that risk um, and concerned about that. Um, for others, for institutions in particular, you know, if you're on a an endowment and there are five people on the investment committee. Uh, and you decide you're going to have a a little Bitcoin position. Well, who's going to hold the keys? You know, who's going to set that up on behalf of the institution and control that? Um, is it going to be one person? You know, how are you going to handle those decision rights and, and roles and responsibilities around that? And so this model um, is you know within the realm of of what. An institutional allocator like that would normally deal with you know they're sending money through to a trust uh which involves subscription agreements and documents up front and an onboarding process and then the decision rights are maintained that for the institution as a as a entity um without a single person having to hold keys and take on that responsibility and then also the, the risks of commandeering it um so, you know, I think those are two of the two of the reasons that that uh, institutions in particular um, find this model uh, attractive um, and, and and frankly, it's better than anything else that's out there. Um, if you're thinking about how do I get exposure to Bitcoin without taking on self custody? And obviously, everyone should should be heading towards self custody because that's the end state of this all. But mm-hmm. people who are just getting into Bitcoin, they're not, most people are not ready for that, like, right. especially at an institutional level. Um, so this is a better way to get started, we think. So here's what
1: I'm thinking, Jesse, while you're talking. I'm thinking about the difference between current public perception and reality. So for the average institutional high net worth family office investor, especially after the events of the last, say, year and a half. They have Bitcoin probably lumped in the crypto space as unhinged, incredibly risky, massively over-levered. And your product is architecturally exactly the opposite, conservatively designed, extremely conservatively designed in a way that's impossible really in legacy finance. So it's so different than it would first appear. And it's a manifestation. What you're building is a manifestation of the fundamental difference between Bitcoin and crypto that is still not entered public discourse and in public awareness, hence the opportunity for people to get it. But in a lot of senses, what you've built there, that model you've built is totally devoid of leverage, completely transparent, and certainly done the right way. So I commend you because this isn't just an upgrade. This is a really, really significant and needed upgrade in that space.
0: Yeah, thank you. Um, I think we'll just have you do our marketing stuff from now on because that's a perfect <laughs> summary of exactly why we feel passionately about um, this product needed to exist. This is a better way to do what has been done by a bunch of other people who have come in from traditional finance and have done it the traditional finance way without leveraging Bitcoin's native properties. And this this model enables you know, it takes advantage of what Bitcoin does so well, which is custody, um, and and multi-signature custody in particular. Um, so yeah, it, you know, we think it's a better product because of it. Hey Jesse, I have a bit of a logistical
2: question for you. Since you're involved in this, and they're holding keys, at least one portion of, say, a two of three or three of five. This is a question I've kind of wondered for quite a while. Never had a chance to ask anyone who's involved in this. How do these companies that custody, like say your Unchains of the World, your Coinbase, is how is it exactly that they hold these keys? Do they air gap these into like an air gap system? I'm sure they have some redundant backups, but what I'm imagining they don't do is have, you know, a bunch of treasures or a bunch of cold cards. They can't, I mean, that doesn't scale. So what is the give us the a rough idea of how that setup works in the background with some of these key custodians?
0: Yeah, um, it, it's it's funny because people don't talk about it really like because nobody wants to give away nobody what they're doing. Nobody wants to introduce that risk. Um, so you, you kind of just, you kind of pick up things here and there, but I, like I still don't fully know what the different parties, um, in the space are, are, doing. Um, but you're right. It's people aren't running around with, with Trezors. They, they've got a more, um, I don't know, a more industrial, um, air-gapped, multi-sig approach, usually. Uh, and and these things are kind of done in bespoke ways, too. And some of them, uh, you know, talking to some of the older service providers in the space about how they do things, um, some of them are a little bit hotter than cold yeah. uh, than you it's would expect. It's your old Mt.
2: Gox where you just had, you know, a thumb drive <laughs> that had yeah. billion and, a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin on it.
0: Yeah. and, and Connected to the you know, computer. A good chunk of like, I think what I've gathered, and I can't say this with with any definitive claims, but um, what I've gathered is that a fair number of service pro- service providers are doing something with like hot keys that are sharded and then stored in a bunch of different places, such that they've created like. We you start know, giggling
1: not... whenever we hear the word sharded. sorry jesse it's yeah. not your fault <laughs> yeah, we, we had a we turn.
2: had an episode like one uh what was it a couple couple weeks ago with Daz and sab where sharding came up and it became it sounded like a t and we're just immature <laughs> firemen i tried to hold it i, I tried, tried to hold it. it in too i'm giggling
1: <laughs> sorry C- and dan had tacos <laughs> so
2: he's
0: thinking about sharding <laughs> yeah yeah that's just cute <laughs> yeah um and so, anyway, I, I don't fully know, um, and but I, but everybody has their own little like bespoke service that um, or or setup that they've been running with, and, and the and the longer they've been running with it, the the more antiquated some of them are, I think. Um, but it's not. It's, that paints a little bit of a scary picture of it. But I, I think that. The, yeah, yeah, I think what you're trying to get at though is that basically. Know. But everybody's it's one done of those some... things you
2: don't want anyone to know.
0: Yeah. And everybody's done yeah. something that's that's pretty robust. Um, if a little bit outside of what you would quote unquote call best practice.
1: Yeah. It makes sense that it wouldn't share anything though, but I have been curious. I bet some of it's a little more archaic and simple than we might imagine. Yeah. yeah. I'm
2: I'm what I'm kind of imagining in my mind is that if you guys ever seen that South Park episode where they have the great the router fails <laughs> and the, in order to get the internet back on, they have to just pl- unplug the router for thirty minutes and or thirty seconds and plug it back in. And it's this big thing; it's just a giant router. Anyway, I digress. Um, it's just a giant cold card. Yeah, Dan, that's all it is. <laughs> Hundred times larger card. than normal.
1: Same features. Same yep. thing. Let's pivot into U.S. fiscal dynamics. So okay. the, the the outline we had for this is to talk. Current fiscal situation, debt debacle, inflation dynamics, and then maybe if we have time, parlay into Bitcoin valuation. Having get some uh, some bullish boners fully erect as we exit. Um, but I want to start. I'm going to read a quote of yours from one of your pieces. Your writing is really good, man. I mean, you you clearly spend a lot of time distilling this down to make it as short and and punch-packed as possible, and we appreciate that. Here's one quote from a piece you have on the fiscal situation. When it comes to the United States fiscal position, we have already passed the relative event horizon, even though most people think that we're still in the safe zone. What is this event horizon? Why don't you start us off on some high-level thoughts about the fiscal fiasco, and then we can go from there?
0: Yeah. Okay. So, so in terms of the black hole metaphor here, I, I think of I think of uh, the U.S. national debt as a black hole. Um, funnily enough, I also think of Bitcoin as a black hole on the world's balance sheet. Th- those are the same metaphor in two different directions. One's a good black hole. The other not a good black hole. Um, in, in fact, when you when you put the U.S. national debt on a chart, you know, where, where we go further and further in the red going down, uh, it sure starts to look like a black hole too. It it's, It is an incredible, um, the growth over the last 50 years in particular has accelerated in a parabolic way and not in the direction you want it to be going. Um, and so what that does is creates a, a, a gravitational pull for, you know, let, let's call the U.S. a little spaceship out, out here in, in, in space. And the black hole is pulling at us because of interest expense. So when you have debt, you obviously have to pay interest expense on that debt every year. And that's the gravitational pull because you you have this line item in your budget um, that has to be paid, which is your interest expense for that year. And for the last 10 years, it the the interest rate that we've been paying on our debt has been. Basically zero, um, and that's because you know the Fed has had, in, has had interest rates down at zero for the better part of the last decade, and obviously in the last year uh, that has changed. So now interest rates are up at five percent, um, and the national debt is catching up to that rate. the The rate that we pay is it's a weighted average of um, the duration of the instruments that it's held in times the rate of the the interest rate at the time when those contracts were created or rolled over into that um, current uh, contract. So right now we are on our way to a weighted average of 5% interest rate on, on that. I think we're about halfway to that. And we have $31 trillion of national debt. So if you have 5% interest, uh, interest rate on $30 trillion, that's $1.5 trillion a year in interest expense alone. So that, that's like, if you have a credit card, you're, you're running a balance, they charge you interest every month. You're not getting anything for that. You're just treading water with that. You're fighting the force of, of that debt getting bigger. Um, and, and so that's the, the gravitational pull that's pulling us in towards this mass that we've created, the national debt. Um, and I talked about the, the relative event horizon because obviously we know that with, um, with a black hole, there's there's an, an absolute event horizon. The, the quote-unquote event horizon that we normally talk about is actually the, um, the speed of light event horizon. So that's the point beyond which um, light can't escape the the gravity well of a black hole. Um, And and light is the fastest thing in the universe, and nothing else travels as fast as light. So we think of that as like the danger point, where once you go past that magical threshold where light can't escape, um, then you can't escape, obviously. If light can't do it, then you can't do it. But what we don't think about is how Um, since we can't travel anywhere near, uh, the speed of light, our actual relative event horizon is way further away from, from the black hole, because there's some threshold beyond which we, we cross, um, where whatever, you know, whatever the maximum speed of our spaceship is, uh, we cannot offset the gravitational pull of that black hole, Beyond some some invisible threshold, there, in fact, a threshold that you can you can see stuff beyond it because light can still escape, but but your your spaceship can't. And and I tried to pull that into this this piece because um, your your ability to escape the black hole is only as good as your maximum velocity, your your ability to pull yourself out of that hole. To move away from the black hole specifically, and and then when you look at like what are politicians doing to fight the the gravitational pull of 1.5 trillion dollars of of annual interest expense on our national debt, they're not doing anything. In in fact, if anything, we're heading straight towards the black hole because we can still see it, and we're clearly still far enough away that there's no danger, and yet. We spend eight hundred billion dollars uh, for on the Department of Defense every year. I think that's the number.
2: Yeah, um, yeah, it's pretty close to right.
0: So the interest expense is rapidly approaching twice what we spend on defense. And where is it coming from? It's not. In fact, it's it's not coming from anywhere. We are we're taking on more debt to pay for it, making which yeah. is makes the black hole even have even greater gravity. And you can see how this system doesn't end well. It, it is, we right. are in a gravity well that is pulling at us at, to the tune of $1.5 trillion a year. And we're already unable to balance the budget. We are currently on track for a $2.2 trillion deficit this year. So we're already adding to the, to the gravity well every year. And now we're going to be adding even more because of this interest expense that's pulling us in to the black hole mathematically, it is only possible to get out of this at this point in time if we were to radically cut spending and somehow increase productivity and somehow increase tax receipts. Those things would have to happen at the same time. And you look at at Washington, that's not happening. Nobody's cutting spending. The debt ceiling deal that they were fighting over, amounted to nothing. There is no concessions. Shocking.
1: Absolutely nothing, Jesse. I After reading your thread on the debt ceiling, I just tweeted a few minutes ago. I said, the debt ceiling being lifted and the Dems agreeing to freeze spending at existing levels for two years is equivalent to a dude who's currently racking up 30K a year in credit card debt, telling you he's going to rein it in by keeping his cash flow as is. And this is, in a lot of people's minds... A manifestation of austerity and them locking it up. Yeah, we're locking it up at at two trillion dollar deficits. I mean, it is we're so far, we're so far from any tangible austerity. It's not even funny.
2: Yep. Yeah. So in that piece, you mentioned that 129. We're we're at 129 percent debt to GDP. Uh, It's something like 95 to 98 percent of countries that hit that. I think the only one you identified that has hit above that was Japan. And they are in the course of circling the drain right now. So with your analogy you're drawing, they've, they are right now, Japan is breaching the event horizon and they are getting sucked in and we're, we're not even going to see what happens to them because they're going to disappear behind the veil. But what is it that can happen to these countries? What is it that generally happens? It seems that there are two disparate paths. We're going to pick one of them. Um, outline for us what are the two paths that generally happen to a country once the event horizon has been breached? Uh, what happens to all of our... When we get shot out in the other side of the universe through that wormhole,
0: yeah. So, I, I think um, one thing you can one thing you can think about is is if a country is small enough, they can be propped up. They can be bailed out. Uh, Greece, uh, ten or so years ago, had this happen where their fiscal situation got out of control, and the EU just saved them. Um, and, and that's fine if you're Greece, but it's not going to happen if you're the United States, um, or the U- EU for that matter. And so, th- so that's off the table for a larger country or Japan, even Japan's too big to be saved in that way. Um, so what ends up happening is you have to screw over the people who are holding the debt that y- that you've pledged you know you say so who are who holds the 31 trillion dollars of the us national debt it's a mixture of um foreign central banks um foreign sovereign wealth funds foreign investors foreign companies and then and then wealthy individuals uh and you know in their portfolios they don't even realize what they're holding but they have some of that in there um you know, corporations in the U S and then like Joe, the plumber types have some little bit of their, if you have a, if you have a a portfolio and it's a 60, 40 portfolio, that means you've got 40% of it in bonds. Mm -hmm. And some portion of that is in U S treasuries, which is how, how the debt is issued.
2: So and some portion of that plumber's pension fund as
0: well, I'm sure. Exactly probably a large portion of that pension fund. Yep. Um, so so those are the people holding th- this debt and, and what do, what do they have? So there's 31 trillion um, of this debt out there and soon it will be promising 5% a year of yield um, for you know, return for those investors um, as a thank you for letting us borrow money. And that's great so long as inflation is below 5%, right? And and if it's above 5%, then you're getting a negative real return, which is happening right now because the official inflation statistic might be around 5%, but the unofficial inflation, when you go to the grocery store, when you try to do anything and you notice what, what it cost a year ago, it's more than five percent more expensive. I think it's, uh, according to the Chapwood Index, something like ten to thirteen percent right now in the U.S. So, uh, what happens when you, when you um, have to default? That's what it's called, defaulting on the debt. Um, you say sorry to all those people holding, holding those promises for for more real, re- real returns over time, in, denominated in your currency. And typically what you what you do is you soft default. So you don't say, you don't send a letter saying, sorry, we're going to renege on these contracts. Instead, you just print a bunch more money. And that makes it easy to pay the nominal contracts that you've p- pledged um, because now the dollar is worth so much less. So if you were to print a bunch of money, the dollar is worth half as much suddenly that debt, in real terms, is, is worth half as much and it's easier for you to service and, and get out of. Um, Japan will probably have to do something like that. Uh, and, and every other country on Earth is um, rapidly following. Uh, in, in fact, with smaller countries um, like Argentina, Venezuela, you know, the classic Zimbabwe, um, I think... I think Turkey right now, um, th- th- this is happening to them faster because they're the canaries in the coal mine. Their balance sheets are are worse, um, and they have people don't want to hold their 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 debt um, because they don't trust that country for whatever reason. They don't trust the the balance sheet of that country country, and so they have less w- wiggle room before they um, have to print a bunch of money and cause a bunch of inflation and inflate away the debt. So all that to say that the only way out is some kind of default. So, Josh, what you were talking about is um, since 1800, 51 out of 52 countries that have ever reached 130% debt to GDP defaulted, uh, whether through soft default or hard default. And it's, it's always a soft default because that saves face for the politicians and they never have to fess up and say you know, we're, we're reneging on our pledge.
1: Yeah. I, I, I'm going to quote you again here, Jesse, from one of your pieces and go back to basically them needing to screw over the holders of fixed income across the board. Like that is the only real way out of this. Yeah. Because here, here's your quote. It's imperative for policymakers to gaslight the bond market into (laughs) thinking that high inflation is off the table while secretly manifesting high inflation. Of course, policymakers won't be able to keep up the charade for long. And I think this is where, not that we're going to pivot into Bitcoin this early, but this is where people can get obscenely bullish, like the three of us at points. Because when that leak in the pool starts to widen and people recognize that that's going on, they recognize the gaslighting, they see that they're getting screwed, and they start looking for alternatives and they write down the list of places they could go and hide to preserve buying power, that list gets really small, really quick. And Bitcoin's a leader on that list. And that's where this thing could move at the margin in ways that may make heads explode. But that is, I I don't see how, I mean, and I loved how you put this in that piece. I mean, that is, there's no way they're going, I mean, theoretically they could go taxes high enough, but then we have the deflationary concerns there and all that. Austerity we've already established in this conversation is laughable. It leaves one option, as you've outlined, and that's going to have consequences for the biggest market on biggest or second biggest
2: market on planet Earth. Right. So, I mean, to, to really just put a fine point on it, the two options are overtly default and let the dollar collapse or soft default and basically let infl- let inflation run extremely hot for a few years. Hope that you can make your and muddle your way through it before the bondholders wise up and then kind of reset the system quasi carefully, you know what I mean? That seems unlikely, but you know what it it is, what it is. The thing that really gets me bullish now that we're talking about Bitcoin here a little bit is this is all happening with the backdrop of the Bitcoin having happening in the next 12 months or so. So every four years, as we're all aware, and we're going to let Jesse just tee off on for probably the next 10 minutes because it's (laughs) going to be, I mean. Seriously, like you, you do the best job in the world of it. Like we want you to just kill this, but this happening, happening every four years, we're going to see only, uh, what is it, three point one two five bitcoins in the next epoch here. Yep. So I mean, we're seeing a supply happening I'm gonna get ready in for the this. most scarce asset in the world. Hold yeah, on, we're cracking go. two
1: beer. I'm gonna <laughs> go here too. I, I here's the problem. Dude, I didn't with know beer, we were doing this. You guys yeah, didn't tell me it, I had to have got, a beer ready for tandem. I thought I was going to a podcast with yeah, Jesus. it's been in reserve, Jesse, because when we do talk macro with someone like you, we're kind of tip at the spear. You know, we've said this on the show, we're at the edge of our knowledge and intelligence. So this doesn't help me, but <laughs> fuck it. Here we go.
0: There it you go. For the first 30
2: minutes, I'd say. All right. So we are witnessing right now the coal, this coal, coal-less, coalization. Is that a real word? I'm going to go. Oh, with did it.
1: you start drinking coal- here? Did you just take a no. couple shots? Were for-
2: I mean, yeah. that's, a, that's the word I'm making up. We're going. With it. yeah. Yes, it's yep. coalescing into uh, the happening happening at the same time at the backdrop of this entire bond market implosion potentially. Jesse, take this. Tell us how bullish we should potentially be for where this could end up,
0: yeah, okay. Um <laughs> where to start? Yeah, where to start. So uh, i I think that. You know, everybody. Everybody feels how it's kind of nasty out there right now, and it's a little bit shaky. And some people are have decided that you know, what well, it looks like, we've stabilized after after the banking crisis. It's going to be okay. Like that was it. We're through that. Uh, I don't. I don't think so. I think that um, these things happen slowly. Uh, a deflationary crunch doesn't happen all at once. In 2008, uh, Bear Stearns went, went under in March. And then, obviously, it wasn't until the fall, um, September, October, November, that the shit hit the fan. And people thought it was fine, you know, in the summertime. So I think that my base case right now um, makes me a little uncomfortable because I, I think that we're heading towards a deflationary crunch that is gonna hurt uh over the next year and maybe it takes a year and a half to manifest um and i think it will alarm people because i think that the system is more fragile than in 2008 and the the way that they had to react to the banking crisis speaks to that um they didn't allow capitalism to play out they had to go you know yes. backstops underwater securities for banks holding them and they had to create a sweetheart deal for JP Morgan to take over First Republic and and nobody wanted to touch First Republic because of the um, how underwater their balance sheet was and so the government created the sweetheart deal such that JP Morgan would get a 20% 20% return on acquiring those assets every year um, thanks taxpayer you did that uh, and so Lawrence. I think that I think that the Fed's policies of raising interest rates and tr- stubbornly trying to beat um, beat back inflation rates by raising interest rates uh, is gonna work too well. I think they should have stopped. they should have been they're always a year year and a half behind. They should have stopped they should have started raising rates a year and a half before they did when we saw inflation first, Pick up, and they were insisting, no, it's there's no inflation, and then it's just transitory, and then we don't know why it's still here. Uh, They literally are operating with the wrong playbook about what is driving things, Um, and as a result of that, they're constantly reacting rather and and reacting with enough data in the rearview mirror that they can correct for you know the trajectory they're on, which ends up careening between. Deflation and inflation, um, and what they've done now with uh, interest rates at five percent, um, you know, mortgages are now seven plus percent, uh, and and that means that for for payments to come down to where they were, uh, house prices have to come down dramatically, and that's going to break a lot of things in the financial system. So my base case is that, um, we see a deflationary crunch manifest and it's kind of alarming how deep and how quickly that, that drops everything. Um, and then the fed will be forced to step in with a scale of stimulus that, you know, just like they did in COVID. You know, I I think the people forget that, um, in 2019, in late 2019, the financial system was wobbling uh, and they had to do a lot of um, overnight repo to stabilize it. Uh, and then COVID comes along and I think it just was a great excuse for them to inject a bunch of money to stabilize the financial system yes. to prevent a crisis that would have happened if they hadn't. And that it, that was them kind of getting ahead of a crisis and they printed $10 trillion in the US and $20 trillion. Globally. So I think that we're going to end up... Like, logically, I I can't help but conclude that that's going to happen. That same scale is going to happen again. Um, a, Starting a year, maybe a year and a half from now. Um, they're going to step in and print a ton of money just as the Bitcoin halving arrives. Mm-hmm. Um, and that... Will I should create absolute fireworks because in the COVID um, there's a great chart from uh, what's his name Julian Timmer from Fidelity of the COVID stock market ultra bullish lately. Yep, the COVID uh, COVID stock market in one slide, and you know all these different stock categories are doing pretty well with all the COVID stimulus. And at the top of the chart is Bitcoin because. When you print a bunch of money, nothing does better than than uh, a f- an absolute scarcity um, asset. So, um, yeah, I think that the that massive force of w- I think what's going to play out here of a deflationary crunch that necessitates a stimulus on the scale of COVID plus, so ten trillion in the U.S., twenty trillion globally. Um, that'll have to happen I think that's the only way out of it. They're gonna have to kick the can in such a gigantic way um, that the, the whole stock market will rip um, yeah the housing market will rip too I, It actually scares me a little bit because I I don't I don't own a house because I want it all in Bitcoin. Um, so I so we rent and um, and I think that, if my thesis plays out, then the same like COVID era housing bull market is gonna happen again, and people are gonna be scratching their head like, why are yeah. we in a bull market right now? Why, are this, why is the value of my home getting worth more? But it's not getting yes. worth more, it's just that the dollar is becoming worth It's these rapid more.
2: oscillations that happened in the Weimar Republic, which you pointed out in one of those pieces. Yep. Um, it, it's like the rapid oscillations that happen like a bridge, when it, there's the right frequency, a bridge can actually shake itself apart. Like There's a resonant frequency that every structure has. And when that resonant frequency is hit and repeated and repeated, the impulse becomes greater and greater. It's like uh, a wave is increasing the size of a wave, and it can shake apart a giant, robust structure um, by yeah. just hitting that repeat again and again. And it feels like that's what's kind of going on here.
1: The The other thing I was going to say real quick is that This is where having a zoomed out understanding and perspective and research mindset, I think is very valuable. So for somebody that has limited time, right, that's not working full time in finance, I suggest you not waste your time day trading or swing trading. Okay. Start learning high level, broad macro liquidity debt dynamics globally. Because the problem is when you get caught in the weeds, we're suggesting in that chart Josh just hinted at that you had in your piece that's a very well known chart of gold in the Weimar Republic. It's really hard not to get caught off sides in the midst of this volatility, in the midst of deflationary shocks on a broader, really significant inflationary timeline. It's hard not to get off right. sides. You to don't lose want to be conviction. leveraged at
2: a time at a time like this, you do not want to be leveraged. Totally.
1: And that's where I think the most helpful bang for buck for where to dedicate your research is more like decades long macro dynamics. And that's maybe Josh and I are in the clown or clowns, but one thing, one maybe benefit we have is we have limited time, right? We're career firefighters with young kids. We can't spend time looking at daily, weekly charts and trends. All we can really do and where we've invested a lot of our energy is just in the broader macro fundamentals and plumbing. And that's where I really think the investment opportunities are. Make trades, dollar cost average into assets that have long-term potential based on macro trends, because I'll I'll repeat it for the third time here. It's going to be so common to get caught off sides on a trade or lose conviction in something that's an absolute banger long-term, but didn't feel like it for six months or a year, a year and a half.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And going back to what Josh was talking about, about um, waves combining, um, I think that I think that in a funny way, we, we had a negative wave combined with the positive wave of the halving. Um, the 2020 halving was a positive wave. Every halving is a positive wave for for Bitcoin's price because of the, the doubling of scarcity for, of new, new supply. Um, but we were in a QE environment, a quantitative easing environment in 2021. And then the Fed started to pivot, uh, right at the end of 2021. And I think that's part of why we didn't get the like blow off top craziness. Uh, you know, it's that plus the China mining ban, um, right. creating a bimodal top in 2021. Um, and the, the extent of, uh, leverage, um, long positions creating an incentive to be short bitcoin um but i think that the pivot to qt was a big part of why um bitcoin didn't go as high as it as i think it probably would have i think it would have gone to six figures um had it not been for that so now we're going into the halving, um the, the next halving, and that's a positive wave and they're in a QT a quantitative tightening tightening um, environment right now, but if that scenario that I just talked through plays out, they will ha- they will be having to switch from like a very restrictive um, monetary policy climate uh, and, and go back to that. You know when Kashkari was saying there's an infinite amount of money in, in the Federal Reserve, like that'll be the sentiment again because they're going to be trying mm-hmm. to solve put out a fire by throwing money at it which you know I that's what that's what their hose is connected to on their fire yeah. truck they're connected to a vat of money <laughs> and that's how they deal with fires
2: yeah they don't um, measure their arms like we do <laughs>
0: yeah. so th- that positive that's going to be a positive wave that stacks on top of the positive wave of the having so I, i'm i'm increasingly seeing I hesitate to say is my 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 primary um, case here I think it's I think it's there's not enough evidence to support that yet but I wouldn't be surprised if this next um, Bitcoin bull market outperforms the prior one and you know every successive post having bull market has been smaller than the one before it and that's the nature of the the, the, the impact of the having getting smaller because, you know, you, you go from 50 Bitcoin per block to 25, 12.5, 6.25. Um, and now it's going to be 3.125. That that delta of 3.125 is less than the, the prior delta. Um, but this other force, this other positive force that could amplify the upside for Bitcoin um, could mean big time fireworks in 20, starting starting a few months after next year's halving, because it always takes a few months for the supply shock, the supply shortage to accumulate and start generating the supply shock in the marketplace. Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, my base case right now is that my base case is that we see a bull market about the same size as the prior you know, the 2021 bull market. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if, because they have to print a ton of money and everybody's a little bit more aware of of the inflation going on around them and the state of the fiscal situation, um, wouldn't be surprised if we have an even bigger bull market this time. Mm.
1: Yeah. Can you break down some of just the basic having math? It's so simple, but I think it's important because- People forget that this is the first commodity in human history with truly algorithmic supply. It sounds so simple to a Bitcoiner, but it's a massive cheat code because there's an element to this asset that behaves differently than any other asset that has ever existed in history. And it's quite simple. There's just a a guaranteed mathematical choke point. Walk through some of those dynamics for us.
0: Yeah, I think um, a good starting point is to think about how Like, how do you go from no Bitcoin ever, no Bitcoin in existence, to all the Bitcoin that will ever exist? Like, how do you go from nothing to to 100 percent? And Satoshi, the creator of Bitcoin, implemented a a very clever design of releasing half of all the supply in the first four years uh, through through by attaching you know 50 Bitcoin reward to every block and a block is every 10 minutes, and so whoever mined that block gets that reward, that's how you fairly introduce this currency into circulation. Um, and so first first half in the first four years, th- the next four years, um, half of what's remaining. So if you think about that, it's 50% of the supply in the first four years was released, 25% in the next four years, and that math continues, Um, so 12.5%, 6.25%, it starts to create a curve approaching an asymptote. Um, There will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin. And we're getting pretty close to that now because we've gone through three halvings. Um, We're about to go through the fourth halving. I think it's, what's it now? It's like 8% of all the Bitcoin is left to be mined. Mm-hmm, seven or eight percent. Yeah, and so uh, when when we hit the halving 11 months from now, that'll be 6.25, I believe, percent left. Um, and then we'll re- you know, mine 3.125% in the next four years, and so on and so on. Um, it's so easy to think that, like, oh, okay, that's a cute little gimmick, and that's it. Uh, but there are two different things that that, that does, which... Which are incredible, um, and so we'll talk. We'll talk about the the kind of less concrete one first. Um, when you have an asset that has re- reducing issuance over time, it it becomes a better store of value asset because you know that you're going to be diluted at a, a smaller degree um, over time. And, and that what it does is sort of morphs it from a primordial um, asset through like an evolutionary sequence. It's it's a, it's like Pokemon. Uh, if if mm-hmm. you got your Charizard, your your what is what's the Charmander? Uh, you know, is your is your baby Bitcoin in the first few years of its life, and then every four years it evolves a little bit to become a better asset because people are going to be more likely to hold an asset that they know is going to be they're going to be debased diluted um less uh so you you want to you want to store your value in in an asset like that and so it becomes it evolves to become a charizard level uh uh, incredible store of value that that has a infinitesimal extent of um supply debasement every year and 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 eventually it'll be zero uh, 100 years from now. So that makes it a, a more. It'll attra- be a Charizard
1: holographic. In 2140, yeah. it's hol- it's Charizard holographic. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. It becomes whatever's the most, the, whatever's the tip top um, of all the Charizards ever. So uh, th- that's like an intangible kind of. I, I think we, we often forget about that part of the story here because. We think about Bitcoin as being the same over time, and, and it's not. It, it it changes its attribute attributes its its nature. It goes from being a high high supply inflation asset in 2011, um, which was you know part of why it was easy to uh, easy to acquire some, easy to spend it because you could easily replace it. It wasn't really a store of value asset fast forward 14 years, it's becoming rapidly becoming the best store value asset out there. Right now the annual supply dilution is the same as for gold and in 11 months it will be half what gold sees every year. So all the gold mining efforts around the world every year add one and a half to two percent to the to the supply of gold above ground. And that happens every single year for the last 100 plus years. Um, and Bitcoin is at that level right now. It is as good as gold in terms of its ability to store value without it being diluted over time. And 11 months from now, it'll be twice as good. So that, that's an evolutionary step. Um, so that's, par- that's part of why the having matters. But then we can get to the more concrete, supply-demand-price-equilibrium mechanics of it. So I like to think of you know this time, a year before the halving, um, when we've gone through a major bull market and a m- major bear market, and now we've sort of settled, right? And we're going sideways and everything's boring. I'd like to think of this as supply-demand-price-equilibrium. We have found the right equilibrium level roughly, something like $30,000 right now for, for the kind of asset that Bitcoin is at this point in time, the amount of supply being created every month through mining, um, and the amount of demand from, and that ranges from institutions trying to increase their position to, you know, and I, and I think this is the, the real core of it is sat stacking plebs who are buying up all the supply that's being mined so we have found the equilibrium price where the amount of Bitcoin being created every month is eaten up by all the demand, the net inflowing demand coming in every month. Uh, and that price level happens to be 30000 um, I think that the stock-to-flow model expected it to be higher for for this point in time, but this is where we're at. And so I think the you know, the market is showing that this is the, the price equilibrium level for right now. So imagine this continues for the next 11 months, we go just perfectly sideways, fine, no problem. Um, and then the next halving arrives and overnight, the amount of new supply being created every day, every week, every month gets cut in half. So right now there's, um, Nine hundred Bitcoin being mined a day, and at three hundred uh, at thirty thousand per Bitcoin, that comes out to nine hundred million dollars of Bitcoin per month that's being created, being mined. That's just in the supply schedule. Um, and that's going out into the market and meeting nine hundred million dollars of of incoming demand from SAT stackers. And that's why the price is going sideways. When the halving arrives, there will be four hundred and fifty million dollars of bitcoin being created but there will still be 900 million dollars of demand every month from sat stackers so then you've got this supply demand disequilibrium you've upended your your price equilibrium because there's not enough supply to satisfy all the demand at the current price level so you start eating away the supply that people are willing to part with anywhere around that price level. There's a certain pool of it. At any given time, there's people who are willing to, to sell, but every day, every week, every month, you're, the demand is, is eating into that pool such that there's suddenly not as much left. Maybe there's, there's none left um, at $30,000 per Bitcoin. And then the only way a market works is the price has to go find the level where it can find more supply. If there's too much demand and now there's zero supply left, you have to go find that supply and the price moves to go find it. Um, and that that manifests as like bidders saying like, oh, okay, I can't get a hold of any Bitcoin right now. I'll raise my bid. I'll, you know, I, I'll, I'll bid 31,000 and then you start having this little flywheel going of people raising their bids in order to find available supply because there's not as, as much being created and there's just as much demand and that sets in motion a whole b- classic flywheel of mm. price starts to go upwards people see the price going upwards they don't want to sell their bitcoin because they want to hold on to it cuz it's going upwards and everybody on the sidelines starts to see the price of Bitcoin going up and they want in. Now there's even more demand coming in. So you've exacerbated this supply demand disequilibrium. And that's where this parabolic advance comes from, which turns into a bona fide bubble.
1: Yeah, man, it's so simple and so profound. Um, one of the things I've said before, and one of the analogies I draw from my past is I past as I call Bitcoin a one-way miss asset. Years ago, I used to teach golf lessons, and when you're teaching good players who want to play competitively, they cannot miss on both sides of the golf course. They can't rope hook it off tees and then slice it off the planet. They need to strategically know that one side of the golf course is mostly out of play. And when we're talking about a commodity-like asset, Bitcoin it really comes down to just supply-demand dynamics. It's a fairly simple equation. And with one side of the investment golf course completely out of play, let's call the supply side, this is the right side of the golf course, it's totally out of play. You cannot miss right. We know that those dynamics are gonna remain constant and perpetual and fixed, and there's gonna be a choke point that's gonna drive value from that side. So then let's look at the other side of the golf course. You now have to argue. If you are a Bitcoin bear, you have to argue how and why demand is going to go down. And that is a really, really hard thing to do in the 21st century. This now loops into the, the beginning part of our conversation. Bitcoin is the hardest money in human history at a time when hard money might be in its highest demand or some of its highest demand amidst the sovereign debt crisis. It's anti-fragile money juxtaposed against an increasingly comically fragile financial system. It's unconditioned money. And this is something maybe we, we may have time today, we may do it in a future episode, but we're in an age of surveillance, censorship, capital controls, currency wars, conditioned sovereign reserve assets, if we look at Russia, Bitcoin's frictionless money in a world with 180 freaking fragmented fiat currencies. My point in all this is that if you're going to make the demand argument, it's really difficult. And then if you teeter-totter over to the supply side, we've established that's a brick wall. And this is where, I, I never use this word, but it starts to border in your head on inevitable that this thing is headed in one direction unless there is just some totally off the planet obscene
2: black swan event. Any follow-up yeah.
1: thoughts there?
2: Uh, in, yeah. in my mind, dude, after listening to that, Jesse, I'm wondering if you're, what your thoughts on this are. I mean, this one-way miss. the only way that that could be characterized this way and actually not play out the way you describe is if there are some very draconian measures that mm. come slamming mm. down on us. And and I think that could massively affect the demand mm. side where that would put, that'd be like, you know, the truck driving onto your golf course and your ball bounces off of it and ends up in the other direction. And like total black swan that we never saw coming, but a fucking goose just picks it up a, in its beak and takes it across the fairway
1: to the right side of the golf course. Yeah. We're just
2: gets smoked. You see just feather and blood everywhere. Like ball's gone. <laughs>
1: Crazy events. Yeah. I don't know what else. That's the only no way the other side here. of the course is in play.
0: Yeah. I. So I. You know, everybody thinks about like what would it take to kill Bitcoin. Um, and the last time I thought about this, the, the only scenario I could come up with was if you could somehow kill half of the demand um, right when the halving happens. Uh, and and then you'd have to do that every 4 years.
2: Oh, I see so that um, that that impulse kind of disappears and people start losing interest and it just kind of circles yeah. the drain from there.
0: Yeah, and and that would that would be basically impossible to do because if you're a sat stacker, you believe in it. You are you're acquiring sats because you know the halving is coming. So you're not about to lose interest right when the halving arrives. Um and then you know, logistically, that would be impossible too. And then you'd have to do it every four years um, because if you did it once, maybe that is like a muted um, post-halving bull market and the sat stacking believers who are left would still be stacking sats. Uh, and then four years later in the next halving comes and oh look, the mechanic is back in action, price moves upwards, we have a little bubble, goes too high, crashes too low, stabilizes somewhere in the middle and you know you and you keep going so yeah it it is it borders on inevitable and and then you know when you really just stew in this in the logic of it the mechanics of it and you get lost in that for some time which i sometimes do i sometimes spend like hours just thinking about this stuff um us too you get, you, you come back to inevitable and, and then it's kind of, and then kind of hits you over the head how there are these little memes that, um, you know, number go up, uh, that in three words is what Bitcoin is designed to do. And it's this like, you know, over simplification of these mechanics and, and the nature of Bitcoin, but number go up and you just have to hold on through four years of volatility. And, you need to understand the mechanics under it in order to have the conviction that number is going to go up, but number go up. Yeah. <laughs> That's all you, you really need to know about. That's all you need to know about Bitcoin in order to incorporate it into your saving strategy. Yeah. Like how you are saving for your future, for your family's future, because right now you've got, maybe you've got a mortgage, maybe you've got a, you know, stocks and and some bonds in your portfolio. Maybe you have a little bit of gold. Um, if the you know, if the national debt scenario that we're talking about plays out, the bonds in your portfolio are screwed. Um, the stocks will underperform in real terms. Um, the house will probably do best of those because it's a hard asset., um, but it will suffer because the economy is, is hit and everybody's you know, net worth drops because the bonds disappear. Um, and in my and area, so you they,
1: pay 3% property taxes annually. So there's a, there's oh. a rider yeah. on the yeah. whole thing.
2: Yeah. That'll kill you. I yeah, and yeah. Can I st- hold on one sec black before black you move on. on? I don't want this to get too far removed yeah. from you saying number before. go up because I'm, <laughs> I was having a really hard time not cracking up. You were one of the most intelligent people that I've met. <laughs> You, your your work is so well done and hearing you just say number go up and thinking of that <laughs> meme where it's like the total bonehead idiot saying like that, the same saying, you know, the bell curve with the average person saying number go up. That doesn't make any sense. And then the genius saying number go up. It's just eating at me right now making me laugh. But wait, that number go up is is literally all this is about. It, it's what yeah. grabs people. And then you think. That is so boneheadedly stupid to say yep. that, and and then you dig into it and you go, "That's exactly what this is and what this is programmed to do." It sounds so brain dead. If somebody just tuned in to listen to that portion of it, they'd be like, "See, I told you these people are just a bunch of morons." They this is the blue color rich. Bitcoin
1: podcast, is what they would say. Yeah, exactly.
0: And and, and it's it's funny, like recursive thing because number go up because it is programmed that number go up and, and then, and then Hold on. Realize- that's going
2: to be the intro for this. I'm just going to, it's just going to be you saying number go up. dude. <laughs> yeah, okay.
1: I, I mean, I, I honestly, I, I Josh, dude, there's, I love the
0: last piece of that. There's a last piece of, of, you know, people recognize go up. that this thing is designed to go up so that they then pile in. And that makes it that self-fulfilling reality of like, you 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 buy the asset because it's desirable which makes it become more valuable for everyone else um so it, you know how do you change the world how do you change the world of value you have to invent something that is designed to be better than everything else you, out
2: there you have to introduce introduce an obelisk to a bunch of apes and then sh- yes. get them to worship it and <laughs> that's, that's great, how yeah. you change the world yeah he doesn't want to space out odyssey. If you guys haven't seen it, it's a great movie.
1: Yeah. Josh, you and the, and the, hit and on a really deep, I'm going to call it insecurity of mine with this whole Bitcoin thing. Oh. It's that I, I have so much conviction based on this brain and these two eyes and a few thousand hours of research at this point that I just want to grab people that I care about and just say, Trust me, number go up, like we're saying, okay? <laughs> it's like your yeah. sailor friend, Jesse. I think you. I think he's a sailor or something. You just said, dude, this guy got it right away. You told him about it. He latched onto it. He started stacking. But, number but go up. That, that approach is so contradictory to a large degree of, I would say, healthy self-skepticism that I have. I'm keenly aware of the limits I have to my knowledge. I, I'm aware, Josh and I are both aware that we've had deep convictions about other things in our life that have totally fallen flat on their face. I've been totally sold out for things that didn't pan out before, okay? And so I in some senses, I'm just always bombarding myself saying, you could be wrong, you could be wrong, you could be wrong. But this one seems like such a slam dunk at this stage that I am yeah. almost I'm getting to a point, and as the years go on, I, I increasingly so, where I sort of violate that rule. And I start grabbing people I care about and say, I'm putting myself out on a limb here, but just trust me, get some of this and get enough of it where it could really affect your life. Because I'm going to quote Bill Miller here from, you included this in one of your pieces. There is no existential threat to Bitcoin, said Bill Miller. And I, I just, there are insane events, the goose picking the ball up on the left side of the fairway events, but those aren't logical ways to proceed. And like you, you said you spend hours thinking about this. Josh and I do too. I, I'll go out on a nature walk and I'll play games in my head of how does this break down? How does this fail? Where am I missing it? In what fashion am I captured? Blah, blah, blah. And when I really dig into that, I we, I always reach the same conclusion of this is probabilistically so obviously the best place to park capital right now. It's not even funny. But you just sound like a clown when you say these things out out loud. I completely agree, Josh. And I, I'm glad you brought that up because- It's
2: funny. Yeah. Oh. Jesse, before so while we're on the topic of, does this make sense? Does this not make sense to a lot of people when they listen to this? They sound like we're all idiots. How is your friend Dan doing? Is he coming along? Is he still think we're a bunch of clowns? Let him listen. Uh, Any movement on Dan?
0: Yeah, yeah. So for everyone, Dan is um, my the name I gave to a a buddy um, who was featured in my uh, yuppie elite article, which. suppose is the piece I'm best known for. Um, And we went to Stanford Business School together. uh, And the last I heard from him on Bitcoin was, I probably asked him about six months ago, and he was still still poking holes in it a little bit. Um, He was more interested at the top. uh, And then I was at a a wedding in Hawaii where he was, um, and he was there. Uh, last summer, right when we were falling through 25,000, um, mm-hmm. it was, you know, bad timing, of course, to be in Hawaii and have that happen. Yep. Uh, and, and I, and I asked him, you know, Bitcoin's price had been at 30,000 like a day before. And I was like, would you buy a, a Bitcoin just to have one if you could get it for 25,000? And he was like, yeah, I probably would. And I was like, guess what? You can do that today, <laughs> and you know, of course, as soon as the price of Bitcoin is now twenty five thousand rather than the thirty thousand and the discount he thought he was getting, um, he wasn't interested anymore. So, at some point, they'll all. At some point, everyone has to come to terms with with what Bitcoin is doing. And, and I was going to mention this earlier that you know, I think part of the problem for for people from my kind of background is that we were taught that the efficient market hypothesis is true, and Bitcoin's entire design flies against the efficient market hypothesis, um, which says that to believe in the efficient market hypothesis is to believe that the market will price in all information accurately.
2: Right. Mm.
0: And if that was true, then the halvings would be priced in. Because uh, j- just 11 months from now, an event will happen, and the last time it happened, from the date of the halving until the, the peak t- 12-ish months later, was an 8x. And the, me- the same mechanics are about to play out, and maybe it goes a 4x, maybe it goes an 8x, maybe it- maybe it does a 15x. But that would mean that if, if, if that's true and you wanted to ride that and if you're thinking about, you know, acquiring that position now, you'd be looking at two years from now to a peak to get a 4X, 400%. Where else are you going to get that in two years? It's an incredible bet to be making based on everything. That's all the information that's out there. But what's happening is that there's, a, there's an understanding gap because you have to break your paradigm about how you think markets work, what you think the value of gold is and why people value it. The, the Keynesian view on things is that gold bugs have a screw loose. You know, they, they, they just like shiny things or, you know, they, there's some ancestral memory of, you know, being a pharaoh or something like that and people are playing playing pharaoh by buying gold no it's not about that it's about it's about a scarcity bet it's about valuing scarcity and storing your 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 work your time your energy that you've you know people have paid you for your time and energy and you are storing that value in something that can't be debased that's why people value gold and and so you know the efficient market hypothesis says that if bitcoin was going to be worth a lot it'd be worth a lot by now. You know, if increasing scarcity mattered, it would be worth a lot by now. Um, but that that doesn't jive with the mechanics of every month there's $900 million of new Bitcoin being created right now. And that that goes out into the market and, and you can't price that in in advance. That's, the Bitcoin that's created tomorrow can't be accounted for today yet like that that force is yet to be you know delivered to the market. So so what are you doing trying to you know f- from your armchair say that this or that can be priced in when when that economic force hasn't played out in the market yet. So you know that's a big part of why people with my background don't get it yet is they think that they think that the only like if, if this thing was valuable, someone else would have figured it out by now and priced that in. And that would mean it would be at its terminal value today. But when you introduce something brand new to the world, day zero, nobody understands it. And, it, and it's not like day one, everybody understands it. That takes time. And in, in terms of how humans think about value and finance... 14 years is lightning fast, you know, within a generation. Yeah. You can't move any faster than that in terms of going from something with no value to something with a ton of value.
2: I was thinking when you were talking about this, the, the parallels between, like, say, Alan Turing, who was the inventor of the modern computer, and like a Hal Finney. Uh, Turing was talking about intelligent machines, you know, in the 1940s. And I think it's because somebody who's like a proprietor or an inventor, somebody who sees long and sees the real basic fundamentals underlying this can see far into the future because they can make a lot of leaps between where we are now and where we're potentially going because they just fundamentally understand this thing. It made me think of Hal Finney and his prediction in 2009 about each Bitcoin potentially being worth $10 million. Because if you extrapolate his understanding of what this was potentially to what it could potentially be, having those first principles and understanding this, it made sense that that was a real possibility. And in 2009, it sounded crazy, just like in 1945, it, it sounded crazy for machines to have any intelligence whatsoever. But both of those things seem to be prophetic in retrospect. But I think really it has to do with people just having very, very deep fundamental understanding of what it is they're talking about in a very early part of a technology's development. Yes,
1: yes. There is a reason that there is a unique degree of information asymmetry surrounding Bitcoin. This thing really, in a lot of ways, does the impossible because of the advent of numerous new innovations, the internet, public-private key for cryptography, blockchain, all these things coalesce in this new technology that is very alien-appearing and otherworldly for people that have swam in the traditional markets for a long period of time. So this absolute scarcity protocol that can move at the speed of 21st century finance really does seem impossible and doesn't click for a lot of people for very good reason. And the same is true for the three of us. It took me a while to really get this. Even with my firefighter economic knowledge, it didn't make sense. It didn't fit the boxes. It wasn't something Dave Ramsey wanted me to buy, Jesse. Um, and so like it it's just it's no wonder that there's opportunity because it's a complex thing to understand. It works, it's gonna continue working, it's gonna underpin a lot of things, but it takes time to digest. It's it's and, understandably and that, complex.
0: Yeah. And and part of that um is is that you in many ways you're better off not having an existing understanding of how finance is supposed to work um when you come into bitcoin and i think that's part of why that's part of why blue collar guys get it and and then you know venture capitalists turn their nose up at it um because they deeply know a version of finance that works in the money printing world Mm. um and that money printing world is is it's very complex and ornate. Uh, there's all these crazy little mechanics of how m- the the piping works in that world, and it's hard to hard to get. But as humans, we can understand. You know, we can understand gold like that. Just makes sense. It's rare. It's hard to come by. It's shiny, it's pretty, you can make things out of it. And when I value it, um, my value propagates into the future effectively. So, you know, you kind of have this... It's a... It's a heuristic that ends up working of like, oh, shiny, rare thing I can make jewelry out of. That that becomes a nice little shortcut to scarcity. What you actually putting value in uh, is something that propagates value into, into the future effectively because it's not diluted. That's scarcity. And so it's, it's in us to appreciate scarcity. We, under, we can understand something that there's a limited amount of. And that's because we've been doing it for 70,000 years since shells were around. We've been valuing shell money for 70,000 years. There's evidence of that in, in cave sites. Um, shell pretty, shell rare, shell valuable you know that Speaking that's our just language. like in our dna and it doesn't take much to understand like oh a rare thing that you can't make more of is valuable and is worth storing value in so you know the venture capitalists who turn their nose it up at bitcoin they've learned this fancy or crazy system that they think is the end-all be-all but you know the the firemen The blue collar guys can come into Bitcoin and just use their head, you know, about what do I think rather than what do, you know, all the, the academic textbooks that I've learned over my years of, you know, being an MBA or in finance, like forget all that. What do I think is valuable? Something that's rare, something that can't be debased, something that can't be taken from me. And so that's why this, this. We've seen this incredible opportunity for blue-collar guys to arrive at Bitcoin, use their head, not trust the intellectuals who frown on Bitcoin because they don't understand it, because it's not from their world, um, and use their own head instead and say, no, this is something I want to own. This is something that I understand why it's valuable because nobody can take it from me. Nobody can debase it, um, and because of that, it's going to store and propagate my value into the future effectively. Number I
1: think we n-
2: go up.
1: Yeah, and I That's think we need, to, need to, to give know. you one last assignment here, and that is to walk us through. You have this Bitcoin's full potential valuation piece. It's gotten quite a bit of traction. Yeah. I think Sailor even was tweeting about it, you, you're making waves. Yeah, walk can, us it, through some of the the thesis there of where you think this could go, bullish and bearish cases for the future trajectory of this asset.
0: Yeah. So I guess to tee it up, um, you know, how much value is out there? You know, this it's a question that we all should should have asked at some point and nobody talks about. But I did the exercise to go find how much value is sitting in these different asset classes. There's $900 trillion. $900 trillion of value in the world. $300 trillion of that is in real estate. $300 trillion is in bonds. Uh, $120 trillion in in money. Uh, $100 uh, in, in the stock market. 12 in gold. And $500 billion in Bitcoin. So half a trillion dollars in Bitcoin. That's your, that's your landscape, your global asset value landscape today. And then the question becomes, okay, if Bitcoin has these superior properties when compared to other store value assets, you know it's, it's better than bonds because bonds are going to deliver negative real returns. But Bitcoin has this increasing scarcity mechanic that causes it to see true real value appreciation over time. So right there, every bond in the world is inferior to Bitcoin, yet there's $300 trillion of bonds and half a trillion dollars stored in Bitcoin. So do you think that some of of the value stored in, in bonds, some of the people who have bonds in their portfolio are going to realize, you know what, I want to have more of the thing that's getting more valuable and less of the stuff that's losing me purchasing power over time. And they're going to sell their bonds and buy Bitcoin. I think that's logical that that will will happen. And that's true of every asset class because Bitcoin has these properties that make it, as far as I can tell, superior to every other asset class out there as a store of value. It is going to reliably propagate your value through time if you can withstand the volatility in a four-year cycle. Um, And it will grow in purchasing power because of its increasing scarcity along the way. That's my understanding of these mechanics. That's what has happened so far. That's what I think is going to keep happening. So then the question becomes, all right, so $900 trillion of value, how much of it would rather be in the this unequaled um, store of value asset that has properties that no other bucket on, in this landscape can match? Well, maybe all of it uh, is, is the, then the thing that you jump to. You know, there's no reason... Why it wouldn't be all of it, but then you have to think about, um, you know, ultimately, you, nobody's going to be a hundred percent Bitcoin long term. You're going to have a house. You're going to want to own part of a company. Um, so nobody's going to be fully Bitcoin, and so then the uh, then it became becomes a question of, all right, if if Bitcoin doesn't have a ceiling because there's eventually no supply creation that deludes that, uh, that, um, for example, with, with gold, because it has 1.5 to 2% of new supply created every year. That's then put out into the market. The market has to absorb that. And in, in order to sustain a price and that has worked out to be 12 trillion. Um, if, the price of gold was 120, if the value of all the gold in the world was 120 trillion, if it 10X'd, um, then the value of that gold being created every year would be 10X as much. Um, So you would need to have 10X as, as much demand in order for the price of gold to go sideways. And if you don't have that, then the price of gold falls down to its equilibrium level, which ends up being 12 trillion. You don't have that problem with Bitcoin Right over time because the amount of supply being created dwindles down to nothing. So that ceiling function, that thing that keeps the value of Bitcoin from just expanding infinitely doesn't exist. And so then it becomes a question of of how much of it do you want to have in your portfolio rather than how high could it go? It, It could go infinitely, but then it becomes a question of human behavior of like how diversified do people realistically want to be how much do you value having real estate like how much do you how much do you value owning a a van gogh versus having an you know another fraction of a bitcoin um at some point there people want to have other assets and and that creates the ceiling of what's possible for for bitcoin to you know what percentage of the total global asset value landscape could Bitcoin become? So the way you can come up with like a full potential valuation with those things in mind is by going down the list of the different asset buckets and saying, all right, so there's this much value in bonds and gold and real estate all the way down. and And then ask yourself for each of them, because of how this category stacks up versus Bitcoin in terms of its properties, in terms of what people are trying to achieve by holding that asset, what percentage will eventually want to be in Bitcoin instead? And so like with bonds, I think it's higher than it is with with art. Um, because people own art as like a trophy. People hold bonds because they're trying to preserve their purchasing power. It's not sexy. You don't get anything out of it. You're just trying to propagate your value into the future. And Bitcoin does that better. So a greater proportion of bonds will migrate over to Bitcoin when they realize this, these mechanics. And so I went through the exercise of of really just like my gut feeling about each of these individual asset buckets. How much could how much of the value stored in these buckets would will end up wanting to be in the superior um, asset because of its properties as a store of value asset and and not for any other consumption reason. And the result I got out of that was that 25% um, of the world's value will, could um, migrate into Bitcoin over the next few decades. This Hmm. this will take quite a bit of time. Coincidentally, Um, that
2: $10 million number matches what Hal Finney said. As we mentioned, yeah, it's interesting.
0: Exactly. So, so that um, that twenty five percent of the world's value, um, when it's nine hundred trillion dollars of of total value, comes out to you know two hundred trillion dollars that Bitcoin could could consume um, and, and be worth, and that is ten million dollars per Bitcoin in today's dollars, and of course this this is something that's not going to happen this decade this could happen within our lifetimes that that kind of time scale um and that's just like that's the full potential valuation so like that that's a an intellectual exercise of how high could this thing go like maximum and and what's different about this asset versus any other commodity um out there and and that includes like art um is this new supply issuance goes to zero over time. So that, that that natural bound that you have from new supply creation, having to go out into the market and be absorbed by the market, doesn't exist long-term. Um, and, and that keeps art from being more valuable, even though no, no individual artist is, you know, like you're not making more Van Goghs, but you're making new artists and you're hyping them up when you're creating the new it artist Um, and then the, the dollars in the fine art market are bidding for their newly created works. So there's, there's a limit there too. Like, so that's true of gold. That's true of, of art. It's even true of real estate because if, if land was incredibly valuable, if, if for some reason we stored all of our value in land, people would make more land. Um, you would dredge swamps you would uh cut down rainforest um you know these little things at the margin that you can do and and on top of that there's like square footage in real estate um you know the, the built environment which also is part of that dynamic too so you know bitcoin is the only thing out there that has this it it doesn't have a, a, a natural ceiling Um, And so as a result of that, it can float up in value um, until there's some natural equilibrium about human behavior, about how much they want to have in their portfolio.
1: If I was to summarize where we've been in this chat, it's essentially we spent the first part enumerating the dynamics of why hard money is so prone to perform well in say the next decade or two. And in addition, why we currently have access to the best hard money the world has ever seen. Those two things are coalescing at the same time. When Larry Lippard was on this show, I think it was the first time he talked about hard money dynamics in the 70s leading up to 81, kind of the last time we really saw this thing rip. And gold, gold got to 7% of global assets which today would be in the ballpark of about 35 trillion. We're currently looking at tradable gold, say five to six trillion, Bitcoin significantly below a trillion. So let's say that's a total of seven trillion. So in my head, I've thought I've used that shortcut or that example to say it seems like we're going to be in an environment where hard money is going to be in significantly higher demand than when it was back then. There's a lot of reasons that that could be posited. And here comes this thing. And then in some ways, I think through that is like the lower bound of where hard money is going to get to. Um, and that's crazy to say that that's the lower bound because the yeah even even dividing that by twenty one million or half of that by yeah. twenty one million gets you to a very significant number.
0: Yeah, the the in my mind, the very lowest bound for what Bitcoin can become will become is gold today, which is four 400- hundred thousand dollars would be four hundred thousand dollars per bitcoin uh and that that's as as low as i can see it going um and and to your point of you know the the era we're living through and and what happened in the 70s in the 70s we we defaulted on our on our on our debts in a way uh around paying for vietnam like that's why we went off the gold standard is we had to pay for vietnam so we Said okay. Well, the dollar isn't equal to gold, and we'll make more dollars and pay. Um, and and we never went back. And so obviously, since then, we've been on a fifty-year bender of fiat money. Um, and you know, we might have done a, a minor default uh, on our debts in real terms in the '70s, but now the that entire house of cards is in jeopardy and it it will not be a minor default because of the scale of debt that has been accumulated. But all that, all that debt is sitting on somebody's balance sheet right now. Yes. And, and that is all, you know, everybody there who has debt on their balance sheet faces a decision every decade now of, do I want to watch that go up in flames Or do I want to sell it before that happens and put that money into a different asset that achieves the same goals of propagating value through time?
2: Jesse, thank you for joining us, man. Um, We'd love for you to give a handoff to Once in a Species because we want people to get the most eloquent way for you to impart to them that number goes up that we can possibly (laughs) send them their way
1: i so think if you, you should give it retitle it i think it should be titled number
0: go up <laughs> number go or up so. that's that's good yeah it's i don't know i sometimes sometimes i'm effective on podcasts um of artic at articulating these concepts but i'm so much better at writing it down and editing it and you know making it clearer that way so um if any of this was interesting um and you want to get the the full story and the full effect. And see my other writings. Uh, you can go to onceinthespecies and you know sign up with your email to be a to get my newsletter. It's you know you can be a free subscriber. There's another tier two, but sign up as a free subscriber, and um, that's where I'm putting out all my all of this analysis. That's where the full potential valuation um, article lives, and and future analysis like that. So yeah, you know. I, appreciate people signing up for that because i'm trying to get the message out and frankly i'm trying to arm people with good material to forward to their friends Mm -hmm. and family yeah um and i think that 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 format that like the email of bitcoin analysis that arrives in your inbox and you can decide if it's worth forwarding to somebody uh is a good way to do it
1: i grew horns during this discussion and reading a lot of your work this week, you've got me real bullish. Um, and for good reason. It's not just that this is where this is what this, this project is all about for the two of us. We're going to flip the script. We're going to change the thesis. The moment that the evidence goes the other direction, but in the what five or six year, years we've been studying this, that has not yet happened. And I, I I'll say it. Every time we get on these microphones, if you're not taking a hedge position in this thing, at the very least, I have no fucking idea what you're doing because it seems so obvious and so important for a lot of portfolios, especially people in our demographic. Things are getting tight. Things are getting precarious. Things are getting stressful. And... There's not a ton of there's not a ton of options to get out of this dynamic. There really aren't. The 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 strategies afforded to a firefighter to navigate this and have enough capital to to live a, a happy, healthy, full retirement. They're limited. And this is an incredible opportunity for very logical reasons, many of which we outlined
0: tonight. So Jesse, we appreciate your time, man. I think it even like I would hazard to say that we could we could end up with a very stark barometer of of uh, financial success um, of mm. people who can retire and people who cannot retire from our generation, and and I think that it will be a very clear correlation that the group that can retire is the group that got some bitcoin before the rest of the world caught on and the group that can't retire is the group that that dismisses bitcoin until half the world has already adopted it
1: wow yeah i'm just gonna click stop that was profound (laughs) enough (laughs) does thanks thanks
0: yeah for sure guys looking forward to next time
2: Wow, We are always bullish after talking to Jesse. I smash Bot after this discussion. We mentioned it in the intro, but you should seriously consider checking out once in a species. Jesse absolutely kills in this newsletter. He is one hell of a gifted writer. If you're enjoying our show, please like or subscribe in your favorite podcast app and leave us a review. Also, check out our YouTube channel where we post videos of these discussions. We are on all Podcast 2.0 apps and Foundation is our app of choice for value for value pod streaming. Check them out. And thank you for listening.